This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We continue our coverage of Putin's war on Ukraine, this time getting the perspective from inside Russia. Russian Marxist sociologist, activist, and author Boris Kagerlitsky joins us for the hour, bringing us his analysis of the overall political, economic, and social situation in Russia that he sees behind Putin's surprising decision and miscalculation to invade Ukraine. We get Boris's inside perspective on the many reasons Putin's prestige and popularity was plummeting in Russia, including electorally, that gives us a sense of public opinion and public will. Putin has implemented policies like pension reform and other measures that are more about the colossal level of corruption than economic policy designed to deal with the declining economy. We also get a picture of the socio-political divide in Russia between those who support Putin in his war and those who oppose and bravely defy Putin. Putin is losing this war, and we hear Boris Kagolitsky's view of the multiple ramifications of this fact when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. And we are now three weeks into Putin's war on Ukraine. And we're going to spend the hour with Boris Kagerlitsky in Moscow to get his analysis of the situation, as well as a description of political and social life in Moscow and in Russia now. So we've moved beyond the shock of the possibility of war to its actuality and then to the shock of its brutal and destructive conduct. The war has also achieved much of what Putin railed against. It's united a fractured Ukraine fighting back against Russia's war. It's increased support for NATO instead of weakening it. And despite restrictions, it's increased the protests at home. Protesters facing draconian repression and severe legal consequences and have been arrested in their thousands. And it's also created international support for Ukraine. And then you have to we have to talk a little bit as well about the criminal conduct of this war that has not only strengthened the resistance and the population but it's put Putin into a bind where all he can do is escalate and destroy. So what's happened seems probably all too logical. The devastation of Ukraine is met by extraordinary inspiring resistance. And the question then is, what happens from here and where can we go from here? Ukrainians have always been divided, but now they seem to be united, at least against Russia. And the other thing is that this isn't just Putin's war. It's also the Kremlin's war. So I have a lot to talk about and to ask of Boris Kogolitsky. And let me just introduce Boris. He's been on this program many times. He's a Russian Marxist sociologist, longtime activist, author of many books, including one I use in my classes, Russia from Yeltsin to Putin, Empire of the Periphery, Russia and the World System, The Revolt of the Middle Class, and also the 1988 book, which won him the Deutscher Prize, The Thinking Read, Intellectuals in the Soviet State, seems so long ago. And Boris is a fellow of the Transnational Institute and the coordinator of its Global Crisis Project and the director of the Institute of Globalization and Social Movements in Moscow. That also runs RABCOR. And I just went to RABCOR today. And of course, the website seems to be down. It's not down, but there's no content of the usual kind. So we're going to talk about that, too. And I should mention that Boris was a deputy to the Moscow City Soviet from 1990 to 1993, and he was also at the same time a member of the executive of the Socialist Party of Russia, and he was arrested and held 
for just a few days or overnight, I believe, in 1993, as Yeltsin bombed the parliament and spoke to us right here on Beneath the Surface, just literally minutes following his release. And Boris, I'll never forget what you said. You came to the phone and you said, international solidarity works. It's really quite impressive. And of course, Boris was also arrested during the Brezhnev era for two years for editing a Samizdat journal, Levi Povrov. And there's so many more things to say, but I've also just learned about your arrest earlier this year, Boris, just at the end of September. And there, maybe I should let you talk about what happened to you then. And you spent 10 days in jail and you're clearly persona non grata to the authorities. But maybe we could start before I ask you what happened in the war. What happened to you in October of last year? Well, first, I have to add some minor corrections to your description of, of myself. Yeah. Because I'm not anymore with TNI just, just because they have rotation, which is a proper democratic system. They rotate fellows. So I'm not a fellow of TNI for, for quite a while, though, of course, I keep supporting TNI, which is a very good and uh, progressive institution. And also speaking about the Institute for Globalization uh, Studies and Social Movements, it's being closed now because we were called foreign agents yes. uh, for cooperating with Rosa Luxemburg Foundation, German leftist foundation. But in fact, it was not about Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. It was because we criticized the pension reform. And it was very clear uh, the official a decision on labeling us, categorizing us as uh, foreign agents was justified by the fact that our institute published a paper uh, which systematically criticized pension reform as it was carried out by the Russian government. And at the same time, I'm uh, a professor now teaching at uh, Moscow School for Social and Economic Sciences, which was initially founded by uh, Theodor Shanin. You definitely know Theodor Shanin. Of course. A great historian, also a Deutsche Memorial Prize winner, uh, who actually brought me in there to join this school. Unfortunately, Theodor is already dead. But the school continued and continues. And I think it's a very good school, a very good and progressive place uh, in Moscow, though now it's also under attack. And it's very seriously an attack because our rector, uh, Sergei Zuev, a good friend of mine for many years, is in jail now. He's in jail. And this is because of absurd accusations that uh, they uh, misused government funds provided by the project of the Ministry of uh, Education. He's actually accused of paying uh, salaries, <laughs> basically. Yes, he's accused. <laughs> So he didn't, uh, they, even the persecutor doesn't accuse him of pocketing any copic, any, any ruble of this money. It just said that he paid salaries which were not justified to a number of workers, uh, to a number of people at the institution. So he's uh, in jail for already a few months. And so the school is very much under attack. Well, but we keep working, we keep teaching, and uh, I think we're we're doing our job quite And I think I read on Medusa that you, in fact, were on your way to a lecture when you were picked up on, what, September 30th. So let's speak about my uh, recent arrest. Actually, it was a kind of punishment, but it's a longer story because I actually worked and I keep working. I'm working now 
with Sergei Levchenko, who used to be the governor of Irkutsk, the so-called red governor of Irkutsk for a few years. He was elected there as a governor on the ticket of the Communist Party. Then later he was forced to resign. He continued political activities. And so we built up a team around him, which is not so much that of KPRF, that much of the party, but mostly the team of independent leftists and Actually, we didn't make him elected to the current Duma against all odds. Actually, uh, the problem is uh, not only that uh, the political leadership of the country, the, the Kremlin, didn't want him there, but also his own party was not very happy about him being there because he's one of the critical voices within the party. And uh, the Communist Party or Russian Federation by no means can be described as a leftist party, but at least there are a few left-wing voices. So we can see Sergei Levchenko as a kind of decent social democrat, and he got elected. He got elected, and not only he got elected, but he got elected from a huge region uh, because we have a very odd um, uh, electoral system so that we have proportional representation, but proportional representation is linked to the territories. Mm. So, so it's not on the national basis, it's on the territorial basis also. So he got elected uh, from a huge territory, you know, including Irkutsk province, but also Yakutia and Magadan, the famous Kalima, the Gulag place. Actually. And I think that Irkutsk, if I'm not wrong, is where Trotsky was uh, exiled in the first Siberian exile. Somewhere oh, yeah. near there. Oh, yeah, and he took people. quite a few yes. people were out there. Yeah. Quite a few interesting people. Right. Uh, starting with the Polish rebellion in 1863, uh, who, uh, they all had, uh, they have a lot of rebels were exiled to Siberia, mostly to Irkutsk. And even before that, Decembris, the, the first Russian revolutionaries, were exiled. <laughs> so, it's so, you know, great. this really, go ahead, tell, if you want to finish telling that story, yeah, but I yeah, want to bring it to the present. Quite a tradition, quite an intellectual and political tradition. A very interesting place. I, I really enjoy being there because I quite often, I stay there quite often now. But the important thing was Yakutia, because in Yakutia, not only we got Levchenko elected, we defeated United Russia, which is almost impossible because given the way elect- Russian elections are arranged, it's technically impossible. It seems to, to be technically impossible to defeat the ruling party. We did it. We made it. So they, they were really broken. Uh, is there, and, and when was that election? In, 2000, in 2021? Just now? And I think we also we uh, doubled the number of votes for the Communist Party in, in Magadan. And can imagine the Kalima, the famous Gulag place, <laughs> where people started massively voting for the Communist Party out of protest. So you have to, that was kind of a kind of miracle. Nobody expected that to happen this way. But did and, they did the results stand, or did they try to pad the vote? Well, that's exactly the point. Uh, in Moscow, yeah. the opposition won most of the constituencies, uh, but uh, then they reversed the results. They reversed the results, and uh, in Irkutsk and in, in Makhandan, they were not able to do that. They failed to do that, so managed to have the results uh, kept officially because it was very clear uh, what was the kind of the public opinion, what was the public will. And then there were protests in Moscow, and Levchenko spoke out, being in Irkutsk the very same night, he spoke out, supported those people who protested against electoral fraud. 
And I simply quoted his words on my Facebook page. And that was considered to be a crime. And the funny thing was that Lepshiko didn't suffer anything because he was already elected as a deputy to the Duma. But I was arrested for quoting the Duma deputy. Uh, and that was considered to be a crime. So I had to sp- spend 10 days in jail. That's a well, lot. I was, actually, I was actually arrested while teaching at, at the school, uh, right from the classes. And actually, Leshek was present at the class. He, was, he tried to protest. He was not uh, allowed to do anything. So it was a, a big scandal. And, well, I think in a way it worked. It worked out quite well for us because uh, spending 10 days in jail, is, it's not such a terrible thing. And what really impressed me was that the police, the, the people who were managing the jail, they were all very positive and some of them expressed solidarity. Nice. <laughs> so that nice. Was, that was nice, really. That's incredible. I want to talk about what you think were Putin's objectives in going to the war and perhaps you could go into this kind of domestic pressure, economic constraint. But mostly, I should say that almost all of us who spend time studying Russia did not believe that he would go to war. We thought that he was massing troops and that something would happen the day before and he would back down. So it was a big, unthinkable shock that he did do this. So maybe you could begin by saying what you think his objectives were, and then we can go into how big of a miscalculation we think it is. Well, uh, you know, seriously, I have to confess, I also didn't believe that he was going to do what he did, because I did expect some shooting, I did expect some conflict, and I expected a kind of simulating war, simulating war. Mm -hmm. Uh, I expected him to do a propaganda war, so to do some shooting, to do some fighting just a little on the border of, on the frontier of Donetsk somewhere, and then uh, and announce victory. That would have been the, the proper solution for him. Because, of course, the war can only be explained through Russian domestic politics. It has no international meaning. And one reason why everybody uh, was from the very beginning certain that he was not going to do it was, first of all, that Russia doesn't have resources for a war. Russia didn't have and doesn't have now enough troops, enough weapons, and even enough supplies, including enough food to feed the soldiers. The army was totally unprepared for the war. The military budgets were enormous, but they were all stolen. This money was all stolen. And this has all come out now. This is incredible. Everybody knew knew that everything was stolen. Everybody knew. Probably Putin was the only person in the country who didn't know that everything was stolen. (laughs) Just to give you one example, uh, now when some Russian soldiers were taken prisoners in Ukraine, they confessed that they had food rations. But these food rations expired by 2015. So it means that they were prepared in 2014 or even earlier. So it means for eight years, every single ration, every single ration was stolen, you see, for the whole Russian army. Or at least they were never made. I mean, Mm. uh, the money was stolen. They just reported that they prepared food rations and they just never did it. All the money was stolen. So that just gives you the level of the understanding of Russian corruption. And what surprised me, though, I should confess also, that I expected Ukrainian corruption to be more or less at the same level. What it turned out to be little less. 
And uh, so it's a fighting between two very corrupt governments. But interestingly enough, Russian government proved to be even more corrupt than Ukrainian. And that's one of the reasons why Ukrainians are winning. And they are winning. That's, that's and that was going to be my calculation. I think the same thing, that Putin's losing, Ukraine is winning. But, you know, and also in in some senses, can I just say one thing that they used to call, you know, most people thought of Ukraine as a basket case in the 30 years since it became independent and was simply governed by one or a rotating group of very corrupt people. Absolutely. That. Yeah, but Zelensky's now emerged as someone who has, you know, made all that be in the backdrop so that now Ukraine is seen much more positively. A little later. I'll come yeah, yeah. a little later. I'll say a few words about Ukraine because it's also a very interesting case. Yeah. Uh, but and, back to Russian uh, corruption. It's not just about corruption. I think that exactly the election in September made war inevitable because it became absolutely clear that the country is turning against Putin very massively, very massively. In reality, they lost every single constituency. They lost every single constituency. Uh, the popularity of the uh, ruling party uh, collapsed, I mean, in real terms, not what they declared, because, of course, what they declared is totally different. They, they had a massive fraud. But we know what were the opinion polls. We know what were the situations on the ground. And we know that people in the government also knew what was the real situation on the ground. And the, the popularity of not only of the ruling party, but also of Putin himself basically collapsed because of the economic problems, because of the social problems, because of the pension reform, which was extremely reactionary and anti-social. And, and did this, this turn the pension reform? Everybody talks about that as sort of a key moment that really turned the population against. They have stolen. I mean, the government this time, the state has stolen people's resources, uh, the savings. This uh, pension savings were actually uh, stolen. Uh, and people now have to work five years more uh, for pensions which are less, you see. So that was a major theft. And everybody in the country understood it was a theft. And it's very important that it was so unpopular that Putin had to intervene personally, because very often he tried to play a simple trick that the government was responsible and he was kind of outside of the process. And pretending he was a kind of like British queen who, who had nothing to do with it. Eh? So just having the powers of Stalin and pretending to be the queen of Britain, right? You see. <laughs> but this time, uh, the situation was so, so tense that he had to intervene personally. And that made his popularity collapse, actually. Uh, irreversibly. It's irreversible. It, it's finished. Uh, and there is no way one can rebuild it. And what happened then was that uh, the elections proved that, that there was a massive, massive protest and against the, the current uh, regime. And, well, at that point, something had to be done. Something had to be done to reverse the situation. Uh, these people are going to stay in power, I mean, legally, as they consider that legal, uh, legally for another 12 to 15 years. So they don't even... Uh, think of any kind of rotation of personnel. I'm not speaking about the political change. I'm just saying that these physical bodies are expecting themselves to be in power for another 15 years at least. And uh, they needed some kind of legitimization for, for themselves because they totally lost legitimacy. So the war is about domestic rebuilding or returning domestic legitimacy of, of the regime. That's what the war is about. Everything else is bull****. I mean, everything else is just cover. But... Uh, fig leaf. I, th I totally agree with you on this. Yeah, yeah, but here is the problem that I think was they miscalculated. Basically, they, first of all, they didn't have any clear 
purpose, the clear goal for the war. Even when you ask officials, what's the goal of the war? They can't explain what is the goal of the war. Conquer the whole of Ukraine, uh, having their puppet government, okay, expanding the territory of Donetsk and Lugansk, turning Donetsk and Lugansk into Russian territory, making Ukraine recognize the, the annexation of Crimea, or else not having NATO in Ukraine, whatever. They just change the explanations time and again. So they're never certain what is the meaning of a victory if it is achieved. And I ask, do you also think that Putin's speech, which I thought was completely deranged, certainly crazy leading up to the war, where he talked about Russian restoring Russian greatness? He said, you know, this is the same speech where he denies that Ukrainians are any different than Russians and that in any case, Ukraine was an invention of Lenin and the Bolsheviks. But just the other part of it is a lot of people are saying that what Putin is really trying to do is to restore Russian power in the world and some sense of the what the Russian imperium. Well, that's the kind of propaganda. And to some extent, it's the kind of ideology they have. But what do you mean by, uh, well, making Russia great again, you know? <laughs> At least in case of uh, your friend Donald Trump, <laughs> we, at least we can have some idea what did he mean? At least what did he mean? And the redneck voters of Donald Trump, whom I actually see with some sympathy because as people who are very confused, but hardworking and often very honest people, they at least had some idea. They had some idea what was the meaning of make America great again. And I think that's the one thing that it seems that Russian politicians were greatly impressed by this kind of stuff. So it's very much like make Russia great again. That's the kind of thing. But at least Donald Trump had some idea of the great 60s, great 70s, maybe the, the great times of uh, American domination when America was prosperous and, uh, and producing something uh, industrial. So just like this kind of utopia of uh, industrial welfare capitalism, but at the same time without welfare. <laughs> because <Right. laughs> And also without people of color. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was, was white. It was white. Because it's essentially I mean, uh, racist, too. Yeah. So because the image of America was white. Yeah, it, it of course. White. I mean, in real terms, it was never white. But I mean, in their image, their, it's like you look at the American posters of the 60s and 50s and uh, even early 70s. These, uh, these white, uh, nice housewives, hardworking working class men earning good wages for good work they do at their factories. And so that, that's, that was very clear. What was it about? I, I mean, <laughs> and I understand why quite a lot of people in the American working class just bought it, you know, because there's a kind of collective memories. And what Putin is doing or tried to do it, probably is doing, he tried to do the same thing with the memories about the Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, and to some extent in the Russian Empire. But it doesn't work this way because uh, these are very different societies. These are very different societies and very different collective psyche and so on. But Well, just back- to interject one little thing that I never thought, you know, when, when the mortality of Russians uh, decreased seven years in peacetime during the 90s, you know, under Yeltsin, when when life expectancy went from, what, 65 to 57, that had never happened in peacetime before. And, of course, there was lots of reasons for it, alcohol poisoning, loss of hope, all sorts of things. And now we see it in the United States as well. A lot of opioid suicides, loss of hope, loss of job. It's a similar phenomenon. Well, there are lots of parallels. What we're witnessing globally is the 
decline and disintegration of the neoliberal global uh, economic order. Exactly. Which here, yeah. which happening in America, which happening in Europe. Actually, I think it's going to start happening in China as well, to, in a different form. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's happening globally because the, the system doesn't work the way it used to work. And even though we were, excuse me, you and me were always against the system, but at least to some extent, the system did work uh, according to its own rules, according to its own purposes. Mm-hmm. The problem now is that the system doesn't work anymore, even according to its own purposes and rules and uh, and logic. You know, exactly. so that's, uh, the system doesn't work even for those for whom it was designed to work. And that's the big difference compared to the say '90s or even compared to a situation maybe 10 or 15 years ago, when uh, the system worked in favor of some people and against the majority. Now uh, it's disintegrating. That's the tremendous difference, and that says that. The war in Ukraine is just part of this global process of disintegration of neoliberalism. That's the essential thing we have to understand. And in certain, in a certain way, it's very similar to the First World War, which was also part of the crisis of the liberal capitalist imperialist system as it was built in the early 1900s or in 1890s, more or less. So in that sense, it's a war of capitalism. It's a war about capitalism, but it's also the war about public relations, which failed. So because even before the war failed militarily, it failed as a public relations operation, which was the real essence of the decision making, because they really wanted it to be the war for Putin's PR. We have this Russian saying, short or little victorious war. Well, we thought of it as perhaps he thought he could go in with shock and awe, you know, and then it would be over within a day or two. He would but proclaim sure. victory. hundred percent certain it was going to last three to five, maybe 10 days. 10 days was the worst case scenario. 10 days was the nightmare. 10 days was considered to be the nightmare because it didn't have the resources for 10 days war. They thought, well, if the worst, if worst comes to worst, it would take probably up to 10 days of fighting, you know. But you see, one point which I have to mention, it's very important for American audience. It's very clear for Russians, less clear to Ukrainians, by the way, but absolutely unclear for Americans. We see that when Russia annexed Crimea, that action was extremely popular. And not just because of, as people say, that Russians were imperialists and nostalgic for the empire, not at all. The problem was elsewhere. Crimea always considered itself to be part of Russia. Crimean people were always hostile to Ukrainian state. There were always attempts to separate. And then in 2014, there was no legitimate government in Kiev. In Kiev, they, they had actually a, a mixture of coup d'etat and rebellion, you know. And the government in Kiev had no legitimacy. That's very important. At that point, Crimea revolted. There was a rebellion. It was people's revolt, really. And then Russians intervened and actually annexed the territory, but with tremendous popular support on the ground. And then uh, Donetsk and Lugansk tried to do the same and didn't get enough support from Russia because uh, Russia supported them politically and uh, to some extent, to some extent, not completely, to some extent militarily, but didn't annex them while people expected to be annexed. People wanted to be annexed. You know, they wanted to be. Interfered. Well, there's an interesting poll done by somebody. There was a team in eastern Ukraine this over the summer and asked people in Donetsk or in the Donbass what they wanted. And they said they didn't want independence because they thought 
their leaders were corrupt. They didn't want to be with Ukraine because they said Ukrainian leaders were corrupt, but they said they'd prefer to be part of Russia. Exactly. That's the point. So and now some people ask me, why did you support Crimea and you support Donetsk in 2014? And why you don't support the invasion into Ukraine? And that, that's like what many people say around. We keep saying, because we, we support the people. People in Crimea wanted to be part of Russia. That's why we supported them. People in Ukraine don't want to be part of Russia. The population of Ukrainian citizens have shown that they don't want to be part of Russia. That's why we support them. So we support self-determination. We support democratic decisions. We support people in their, in their right to decide where they have to belong. To. But just in one point is that eight years in Donbass, eight years of Russian indirect rule in Donbass, actually were a tremendous failure. They were a tremendous failure. And uh, people in Donbass became very confused and frustrated. And now quite a lot of them are very unhappy with what Russia is doing. Given the situation inside Ukraine, even in, uh, in Western Donbass regions, which are under Ukrainian control, also we see that people there are now either silent or they're fighting back when Russian troops invaded, because there is a total frustration, total disillusionment with, with the Russian government. Which is pretty interesting because it goes to the point that Putin, you know, has created the reverse of what he said in each case. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know quite a few people who were active in Donbass and in Odessa in 2014. Now they're either peacefully opposing the war or they're they're joining their so-called territorial defense, territorial territorial defense, the kind of militia troops. So quite a lot of leftists and anarchists joined the, the militias. Why? Not because they were happy with what was happening in Ukraine, but by that not happy with somebody else invading their country. So I, I wanted to move just to this other question, because you've talked about these really important domestic, political and economic constraints that is, were the pressures um, that led to Putin deciding to go on a war. And I'm sure that the rebellion in Belarus figured into his calculation, the strikes in Kazakhstan, even in Kyrgyzstan, there were some revolts earlier. But I mean, that that there was so much discontent everywhere. And, and so sort of this notion, well, we'll have a, a quick, dirty war and it'll deflect from people's discontent. Yes, actually, people were very, in Russia were extremely impressed by what happened in Kazakhstan. Actually, now Kazakhstan is undergoing some slow but serious process of democratization. And the labor movement is, uh, which is very interesting, for the first time in many years, is becoming a major force. And it's the driving force uh, for the democratization process in Kazakhstan. It's very interesting and very exciting. And we have friends and comrades in Kazakhstan who work with us, and we are very happy. With, this is excellent. Uh, so this takes me to the question then, of Putin has decided it's made it illegal to call this a war. People, you know, are being bamboozled by the state propaganda, even though there's so much protest and a lot of it great risk. And even now, you know, this example on Channel One that the uh, broadcaster had a no war sign and said they're lying to you and other people resigning. And even though they've closed down the media, I'm just wondering. There are dozens of TV producers and journalists and technicians who are resigning. Right. So how successful is the propaganda effort? Do most Russians still think that there's no war? Well, let me finish with the Crimean case. Yes, I'm sorry. That Putin wanted to do a remake of the so-called Crimean consensus. 
to return back to the situation of 2014, restore his popularity, and reproduce the same kind of enthusiasm. It didn't work out this way. On the contrary, uh, now we have this joke that he wanted to do a remake of Crimean annexation, Crimean Spring, as we call it, and he uh, actually he is doing a remake of the Crimean War of the 19th century. <laughs> well, uh, which was, as you know, the major the major defeat of Russian Empire in the 19th century. Right. And re- usually remakes are <laughs> not good when you do a remake of a film. It's very rare that you do it well. In politics, it's even worse. But my point is that the situation in Russia, honestly, is very mixed. The country is incredibly divided. What uh, Ukraine became united, Russia became divided. Now Russia is divided. Mm. Uh, and we call that people of internet and people of television. There are some constituencies, there are some social and cultural groups which are very dependent on TV propaganda, especially elderly people. Now, this is a big problem that people, mostly in their 60s and 70s, are still dependent on television, while uh, younger people are internet folks. And of course, they have a totally different view of society, of reality. So these are like two different realities which all of a sudden uh, confronted each other. And these are not, like, I just want to ask you, because, you know, we talked a little bit about the divisions in America, where it's very much education, rural versus urban, their class divisions as well. Is that also the case, do you think, in terms of the support for Putin or his war? Or is it really just access to information? Maybe I think information is more more important. Because, for example, there is no sign that the working class is any kind of uh, supportive of the war. But you have to understand that Russian working class is very weak and defeated Mm -hmm. uh, after enormous deindustrialization. Of course, there are bureaucrats, uh, functionaries of different kinds. Uh, Russian bureaucracy is huge. And also quite a lot of people who are just conformists. They're just conformists and they side with the the government no matter what the government does. But this is not a problem. If if tomorrow we have a different government, these people immediately, within five minutes, side with the new government against the old one. All these people were communists, then they became liberals, then they became patriots. If necessary, they will become communists again or, or, or whatever, liberals again, or even, I don't know, fascists. doesn't matter. They absolutely don't care. But what really makes quite a few people scared, especially outside of Moscow, I should say, Leningrad and places like Irkutsk or outside Siberia, especially bigger, bigger cities in Siberia, which are very kind of critical people. They're very critical of what's happening in Moscow. But in quite a few other places, which are medium-sized cities like Kursk, Areol, Penza, and so on, what happens is that they are really is a, a trend which can be described as a, as a sort of fascist uh, political practices. You know, it's not just about repression; it's about making people follow the the same patterns of behavior, organizing people, making them march in support of the government well, making them participate in some sort of uh, rallies uh, where they're forced to go. They don't want to go. They're forced. They face punishment if they don't go. They face punishment if they don't raise their hands in favor of the resolutions supporting the war. And the important thing is the kind of propaganda which follows, uh, because it's much worse than what we get on television. 
you get all these uh, local enthusiasts who are actually promoting really Russian fascism. Russian fascism, it's a, a very much Mussolini-style fascism, uh, racism, uh, uh, very strange racism because uh, it's about Russians against Ukrainians. It's a very strange uh, racism, given the fact that racially Russians and Ukrainians are not different, but they, they try to present the Ukrainians as a kind of different race, as a, as a people who are biologically, they say that Ukrainians are biologically different from us. Eh? But they're at the same time denying that, that they are a nation, right? So, which is pretty contradictory. Uh, well, you see, it's full of contradictions. Every single uh, line contradicts the other line. But at the same time, the important thing is what kind of emotion they are promoting, you know, right. uh, it's uh, hatred, it's uh, confusion at the same time, and subordination. And, uh, well, you see, you, you kind of make kids, uh, small children march. And it wasn't, and some people say, oh, it was like that in the Soviet Union. It was not like that in the Soviet Union, because in the Soviet Union, at least there was some kind of ideology and some kind of social and political practice, like it or not, but it was more or less clear. It was not about following the leader, you know. It was not, a, at least I'm not speaking, maybe, I don't know. I didn't, fortunately, I didn't live under Stalin, right? But, I mean, the, the Soviet Union, which I remember, was different. And it was kind of cynical in the same way. So hmm. it was cynical in, in the same way, because they they followed some rituals, and they, they were cynical about these rituals, but it's like religious rituals, which are part of the way of life. And now they want people to be enthusiastic, if you are not enthusiastic, you are going to be punished severely, you see? But so enthusiastic kind of, about a, an ideology that isn't an ideology. It's kind it's of not existing. Right? Yeah. Be enthusiastic, and if you're not enthusiastic, you're punished for the lack of enthusiasm. And, and this is something something new. So that's a kind of dictatorship over emotions, which they start trying to impose on the people. And I know quite a few people who live in such places, because in Moscow it doesn't work this way. But in Moscow, the in Leningrad, in, in Irkutsk, in Krasnoyarsk, uh, in Yakutia, the, the consolidation of protests is so tense. Mm. Uh, the feeling, you feel it on the street. But in smaller towns, in medium-sized uh, cities, it's very different. Wow. And there are people who are kind of uh, against the war. They're very much isolated, and they're afraid. They're really afraid. Because they're living under permanent pressure that something is going to happen to them. You know? What about, are the, okay, go ahead. I was just going to ask about the troops. One example, they, they had this yeah. um, Z symbol, the, the symbol of the, the invasion. Yes, explain so that. Invasion. I don't know, nobody knows what it means, Z. Nobody knows what's the disease. I think symbol. Medusa today has a big explanation of it. I don't know if you can still read Medusa. But. People, have, people have jokes about it. Yeah. But like in Moscow, you can hardly find any, they had, they says the people should put this Z sign on the We car. say Z in America. Okay, yeah, the Z. <laughs> the Z sign uh, on the cars. Mm-hmm. In Moscow, I haven't even seen a single car with a Z sign. In wow. Yakutsk, I once, in Yakutsk, I once saw one car with Z sign. And so on. In Yakutsk, I haven't seen any. It's really uh, interesting. But in my friend and colleague, Anna Ochkina, who works with me for many years, she lives in Penza, and she reports there are plenty of Z signs on the So car. this is an outward indication. Maybe people are afraid. I don't know. Maybe people are afraid, but this pressure works. Yeah. But it was very funny when <laughs> it was 10 days ago already. It was on te- the first protest on television was very different. 
even before this girl, Senikova, I don't forget, I forgot the name, Marina, Marina Avsenikova. Avsenikova, yeah. Yes, Marina Avsenikova. Yeah. Even before Marina yeah. Avsenikova, there was yeah. another protest on television. Oh, okay. When a, a guy who was presenting a program on driving, <laughs> he said that now there is a tendency to put these signs on your car windows. And I urge you not to do that because first, it kind of prevents you from seeing the, the road properly. And second, uh, they may be heavy objects flying into your window. <laughs> and he was fired, of course, the same day. <laughs> wow. But uh, then uh, a few days later, there were reports in Kaliningrad, this most western part of Russia, Königsberg, that uh, people who had Z sign on their cars really did got stones thrown into their windows. Wow. And also, uh, they had the, the tires also damaged, um, cut uh, by other people. So there was a very visible protest against this jingoism. So it's both ways. So the country is very divided. But it's very impressive, you know, the level of uh, protest in cities across the country increasing even now as the penalties increased. But the other but side of it. The penalties, the penalties are so heavy, exactly mm. because they're afraid. They're afraid there is a massive discontent, massive. So that takes me to, there's two questions that I want to ask. One is about the troops, the morale, and the fact that for those people, you said elderly people often who only know the war through television, do they have perhaps relatives that they talk to who are in Ukraine or sons or brothers or grandchildren who are fighting? And so I guess the question is whether or not this charade about this just being a military operation and not an all-out war will be able to last you know, that reality at some point intrudes. Uh, that's exactly the point. I think we're very close to this moment when the reality intrudes even into the world of television. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, I hate to say, it very much depends on the defeats of troops on the ground. I hate to say because I don't want anybody to be killed. I don't want Russian soldiers to be killed. But unfortunately, the defeats on the ground are making public opinion change. That's what's happening. So the soldiers, for example, are not allowed to have mobile phones so that they cannot report to their families what's actually happening. We learned that quite a lot of soldiers didn't even know that they were going to war. They were told it was a military exercise. We know what Russian prisoners of war in Ukraine say. Some of them try to call their wives or, or their mothers at home and report what's actually happening. Very often their parents are afraid to report to other people what they learned, because as exactly that's the point. Where do Russian troops come from? They exactly come from small towns. They exactly come from all these provincial cities. So bigger cities, uh, they do not provide troops, even though officially we have draft. But in practice, uh, younger people in Moscow or Leningrad, St. Petersburg, or, okay, they usually don't serve in the army. So in that sense, you also have to understand these are people from poorer families, from uh, the places which are more backward, which are, which are less developed, and so on. At the same time, the moral condition, the moral situation of Russian troops is, is very bad, as far as we know. Of course, we don't know everything. You see, of course, they, there is official propaganda, and there are some reports, and uh, the reports which we get, partly from the Ukrainian side, let's be true, Ukrainian side also can 
to some extent, uh, manipulate uh, the facts, manipulate uh, the information. So we cannot guarantee that every single message we get from the other side is true. We have to be very careful about that. And also, again, as I told you, Ukrainian state is not any kind of model democracy, and it's not a progressive state, and we have to remember that all the time. While protesting against invasion, we don't have to get into another extreme and uh, start backing the kind of state, the kind of government they have there on the other side, you know. But anyhow, anyhow, coming back to the point of moral of the troops, uh, it's very low. It seems to be very low. And it's one of the reasons why the war is going to be lost. The troops are not properly supplied. They're not motivated at all. It seems that command and control structures are in disarray. Logistics is a disaster. So the country is completely unprepared for the war. And also they're trying to fight the war the same way as it was fought in um, say, 1914, uh, or at least 1945, right? So with uh, massing infantry, uh, massing tanks, and Ukrainians are fighting a high-tech war. They're fighting with modern uh, weapons, and that's why they get less losses, and they use all these uh, drones and... uh, And And, and anti-anti, all these other missiles. All all these missiles and so on, which actually a Russian army also has, but doesn't know how to use them. I mean, not in terms of technical knowledge, but in terms of military tactical knowledge, how to to organize fighting with all these new weapons, they don't know. So they they behave as if it is uh, 1945 or, I don't know, maybe 1973 or whatever. So also technology of war is is very backward, even though technically they have the technology. It doesn't mean that they don't have it, but they don't know how to use it militarily, properly, tactically, and so on. And uh, getting back to Ukraine, because we're just a little bit running out of time, but just one thing about Ukraine, it's very important to understand what's happening on the other side, because you see, Ukraine, yes, it was very divided uh, till very recently, till till the war. And uh, you know that Eastern Ukraine always had the majority of votes. It always elected their candidates into office. And then all of a sudden, these uh, elected officials behaved as if they represented the other side. And it's not because they betrayed every time and again, uh, but partly because uh, the other side, uh, Western Ukraine, which uh, is not just Western Ukraine, but it's also the oligarchs, who use Western Ukraine as their kind of power base, but it doesn't mean that everybody in Western Ukraine is nationalist, right? But they all these nationalist gangs which are formed in Western Ukraine, which uh, Western Ukraine and the oligarchs who actually finance these gangs and so on, they had a, a real power, and it means that every single government in Ukraine was scared to go against them. You see, every time. When they came with, like Zelensky came with the message, I'm going to bring peace, I'm going to bring equality, I'm going to bring Russian language back to, if not to the official status, then at least to the, give it a higher status, right? He was elected with this message with 70% of votes. And then he was paralyzed. He didn't do anything he promised, didn't do anything. Not because he betrayed his voters, but because he was scared. He was scared to do anything. Every time he moved towards doing anything, he was told, Valodya, don't do it or you'll get killed, or you get killed. If you if you just do anything you promised, you're going to get killed. So, so that, that don't even try, you know. And so in that sense, they had the government with the electoral mandate, which was just totally, totally 
kind of betrayed technically. So nobody did anything to uh, fulfill the, the mandate. And uh, at the same time, the oligarchs kept pressing on, let's continue dismantling the welfare state. Let's uh, drop social programs and so on and so on. So in that sense, Zelensky was a big disaster as a president, a big failure. People who voted for him were very unhappy, very unhappy, frustrated. And that was probably part of the calculation on the Putin side, because they thought, okay, people are frustrated with the government, they're not going to fight for it. But then they thought also, okay, if we invade, everybody will uh, would surrender immediately just because we would surrender if, if anybody invaded us. We would immediately turn sides and surrender. But Ukrainians have to be different. And now what's happening is that it seems that for the first time since he was elected, Zelensky is really acquiring real power. Real Absolutely. Power. Absolutely. So, so I think it's probably good for, so for example, I think after the war, I don't, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I'm saying it can happen that Russian language can regain its status in Ukraine, for example. Russian language can regain its status. That's and uh, Eastern Ukraine can regain its uh, its weight in Ukrainian politics because the situation is changing. Uh, who are people who are, who are the people who are fighting? Who are the people who are fighting? Uh, Russians are fighting. Right. So, Boris, we don't have a lot of time left. I know you have to teach and this must come to an end, but I really did have, I guess, for another interview, I want to talk about the impact of sanctions and what it means. But just to say that Putin's miscalculation was so large and that, as we've been saying, almost everything that he asked for, he got the reverse and he's been defeated militarily and his political project is defeated as well. So at least I think that's the case. And I want to know what you think now that means for Putin. Are there people around him that will force him to resign? How do you see an end game here? Well, let's start start with the fact that economic situation is very dire. Yes. Um, you know, uh, wiped out two decades of growth, I think, is what, what we've seen. Uh, you see, one problem is that uh, they kept speaking about import substitution. For 20 years, they kept speaking, well, at least not 20, okay, 10 years, they kept speaking about import substitution. Nothing worked, nothing. Actually, now a Russian economy is more dependent on imports than it used to be 10 years ago. Because for example, what was the emphasis substitution said? Well, we are not going to say buy foreign cars anymore. We're going to build our own cars. What they do, they just establish an assembly line which builds Volkswagen or whatever cars, even Lada cars, uh, made of components which were sent from abroad. <laughs> so they end up with the industries which immediately stop once the components uh, stop coming. And now we have within Russian manufacturing, just it's the figure I've learned uh, the day before yesterday from my colleague economist. He said, uh, within Russian manufacturing, only 15% of the necessary components come from Russia. Can you imagine? Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. Well, the economy is stopping. The economy is stopping. It's, inc- it's absolutely terrible. And of course, something can be fixed locally. Some, some, uh, something can be, some things can be fixed locally, some, some corrections, some things can be discovered and made locally. But, but in general, we are facing enormous economic collapse compared to what happened in the 90s or less or worse. And that's uh, the, the thing which will go to come to every, every, every family, to every flat. And so, 
specialists, it will hit uh, those people who are now supporting Putin. Uh, smaller towns, uh, provincial cities, and so on. Uh, while bigger cities like Moscow, St. Petersburg, uh, or Kutsk, they're going to Krasnoyarsk, they're going to have better chances of survival. So it's going to be a tremendous mess. And I think there, well, of course, one option is to press the nuclear button, but I hope he will not do it. Uh, Putin will not do it. Or at least he will not be allowed to do it by the military, because I think the military already understand what kind of mess we are in. So what's the end game? We definitely have to face some sort of uh, political change. Uh, we definitely have to have some kind of regime change. How is it going to happen? I don't know. Because it's not going to happen from below, from the bottom up. If it starts with some kind of coup d'etat or somebody making, forcing Putin to resign or whatever. Uh, but then they will have to open up the system. And for example, uh, the situation is so uh, difficult that you need some kind of, uh, I shouldn't say war communism, but some kind of uh, real uh, real radical measures to clean up the mess after them, you know. Uh, so, so in that sense, already even some of the liberal economists uh, started panicking, saying that the kind of economic situation we're, we're uh, facing is uh, creating in, uh, the, uh, the possibility or even the necessity for the left to come to power. Because only the left has some ideas of what to do with the economy where the market economy is decomposing. And it will take another couple of months before it becomes visible for everyone, but it it will come. Uh, Then the problem is whether the left is ready for anything. We don't have any kind of Bolshevik party with us, not even a proper socialist party. The Communist Party of Russian Federation is is a disaster. It's a it backed the war. It uh, supported every single move by Yeltsin uh, recently and so on for nationalist reasons. Ironically, the Social Democratic Party, the Just Russia Party, is even worse uh, because within the Communist Party, at least there are some dissidents or semi-dissidents. Uh, there are some open dissidents like uh, Vyacheslav Markhaev from uh, Buryatia, like uh, Alex Smolin uh, from Omsk. Look, most of them, by the way, are from Siberia again. And semi-dissidents like uh, Sergei Levchenko, uh, who is running this uh, collective called uh, Huge Country, Strana Agromne, mm. which is mostly the, the independent left joining him. As a, so the, 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 posi- the positions of people around him are very clear, like people like myself and so on, and, and all the team. But Levchenko himself so far didn't speak out properly against the war here spoke very critically about what the government was doing, but never made any clear statement against the war, which made us somewhat upset, to be honest. But at least he never spoke in favor of the war. So so at least there are are at least a few people who uh, uh, care about their reputation. Uh, And within uh, within Social Democratic Party, there, there are not even a single deputy who spoke out against the war, and not a single person. And the only person who spoke against uh, the war uh, uh, publicly is the same Anna Ochkina, in, who is the head of Pienza branch of, uh, of Just Russia Party. Now she's going to resign because the, the party is totally against her. So, so social democrats are even less democratic and even more jingoistic than uh, post-Stalinist communists. Uh, but at the same time, we have a lot of movements. We have a lot of uh, leftist and anarchist and social democratic and uh, and uh, radical communist movements. We have plenty of them everywhere. We have a very good intellectual milieu f- for the left. We really have uh, these uh, people and these uh, currents. 
So what happens if, if we have a political opening, uh, what we have to do, we have to uh, rebuild the left. We have to uh, unite these forces, uh, form some kind of coalition and uh, try to, uh, to, to contest power. That's what's, what's happening. Well, we've run out of time, and I just can say I wish you all of the best and hope that, you know, that there isn't a lot of repression along the way and that, you know, there'll be some kind of outcome that we can all look forward to you know, talking about. Boris Kagerlitsky is professor at the Moscow School for Social and Economic Sciences and the former director of the Institute for Globalization and Social Movements, which Russia's Justice Ministry designated as a foreign agent in 2018. You can look for Robkor, that's R-A-B-K-O-R, online, which Boris edits, even though now it isn't able to carry its normal content. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Susan. 